Please rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Row Rose, please give a warm welcome to our guest this week, author and archivist Jane Marguerite Tippett. You may remember we mentioned Jane's latest work in a recent episode. She's the person who discovered the treasure trove of information about the scandal-prone Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson. And her new memoir, Once a King, is an unprecedented look at the man later known as the Duke of Windsor, aka Queen Elizabeth II's uncle, and what Jane uncovered in her research. Prior to writing, Jane studied at the universities of Delaware and Oxford. Once a King is out this month in the UK and debuts in the US next March. Welcome, Jane. We're so thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for having me. We are so excited to chat with you about all of this, but we want to go back. Take us back to when you were at Boston University. What led you there? And we also want to know what role Andrew Morton played in helping you uncover that this information existed. Sure. You know, I was already working on Edward as a research subject. You know, my my plan was to write a book about the 12 crucial months that followed the abdication, both from the the emotional fallout of the abdication, but also, of course, significantly that year ends with his trip to Germany in October 1937, uh, what is becomes just, you know, kind of the really one of the most important things that happens to him after 1936. And around that same time, news broke that, of course, Prince Harry was about to write his memoir. And suddenly the Duke of Windsor's memoirs were everywhere. You know, suddenly there was a reference in the New York Times. You know, it was it became a, a contemporary relevance again. And it's not that I had not thought about those memoirs and utilized them, but it suddenly was like, I wonder if Murphy left an archive. You know, I've worked in archives. I've been responsible for cataloging, cataloging archives. And, you know, people at this, you know, in, in these fields typically have papers. It was like a perfect sort of storm of things. And around the same time, I was referencing Andrew Morton's book, Wallace in Love, which talked about Cleveland Amory's archive. Well, Amory had only been with the Windsors with Wallace for about five months when he was assisting her. And that that piqued my interest further because I'm like, well, he wasn't really the ghostwriter. You know, he wasn't really the person who had worked with Wallace. And again, back to Murphy. And, you know, not an exciting research journey. I'm afraid I Googled and came up with his papers, which are on deposit at the Howard Gottlieb Research Center in Boston University. And I received the catalog very quickly. And it was boxes and boxes of Windsor material. And I think it will probably be one of the most exciting research moments of my life. I mean, I hold out hope for for other, <laughs> for others, but <laughs> it was an unparalleled experience of, um, you know, seeing material that was clearly so exciting and of course, so fresh. Wow. But you knew to chase those details because of your experience as an archivist. And and that was how you knew you could kind of trace that with Charles V. Murphy's role, that there was potentially other documents in existence. Yeah. I mean, I think my role as an archivist, which has really been to work with private families who have not purposely collected their papers, but who, for varying reasons, have amassed an archive, you know, it sort of taught me to to think about a life creates papers. And, you know, a life, you know, you, you, you create, you create an archive 
through a life. And I, you know, it was really, like I said, it wasn't a really adventurous question. It was just, I wonder if there are papers from his ghostwriter. If there were papers from Amory, why not Charles Murphy? Wow. And to me, it was such a simple step. And yet, obviously, one that's been overlooked by many historians, including um, Edward's official biographer, Philip Ziegler, who did not speak with Murphy's family. So fascinating. It really is. And then after Boston University, you were able to corroborate a lot of what you found by going to the Royal Archives at Windsor Castle, where the original handwritten drafts are retained. Is that right? Sure. So when I had seen Murphy's papers originally, Murphy's, uh, aside from one or two um, sort of stragglers, as I call them, which are in Edward's hand, Murphy's um, papers consisted of the typewritten type drafts. So Edward's process was he would handwrite, he would write his, write his first drafts, a secretary would type them and date them. And these were the drafts in Murphy's paper. So I am afraid I bought into this view that, well, Edward could never have written. He would never have had the inclination or the intellect to be able to be a writer. And so I assumed these type drafts were, in fact, Murphy's ghost-written passages. And when I visited the Royal Archives, in fact, what I found out was that the handwritten originals um, existed there and were, in fact, Edwards. And what was exciting as well, on top of the ones that were in Murphy's papers, there were there was additional material in the Royal Archives that had not survived in Murphy's papers. Not exactly sure why. I mean, interestingly enough, those are the most personal elements of the book. You know, when Edward is talking about his relations with his father, the dynamic of his life at home, his belief in a marriage of love rather than a marriage of convenience. That that you know, so it's interesting to think: hmm, did he write these and decide, well, oh, maybe, maybe I don't want to pass those on to the secretary, or if it's like in all archives, not everything survives. Right. Um, but we're we're so fascinated, of course, by the royals, but also by the access to the royal archives. What was that process like for you? Did you just walk in and say, I'm here, I'd like to look? <laughs> you know, I had a very good experience, a very open experience with the royal archives. You know, I wrote to request access, explained what my, my topic was, and was simply presented with material, as you may know, you know, there's not a, it's not like Boston University where there's a catalog and you can search it. They can send you a, you know, for Murphy's papers, there's a full listing of his, of his collection. It's not how it is in the Royal Archives. They do, you tell them what you want to see and they present you. So I actually think that's in a way not a good strategy on their part, because of course it leads people to say, oh, well, what am I not being shown? You know, in Mm. fact, I was shown, I asked to see Edward's writing, anything to do with his writing or his articles or a King's story. And I was given six boxes, big, you know, of material. Five of them were not exciting. They were scrapbooks. They were, you know, kind of correspondence relating to some of the just publication details. But one of those boxes were these, um, these handwritten drafts. They're on yellow legal paper. They're written in pencil. Edward often wrote in pencil, um, very personal letters he'd write in pencil, and obviously it's very personal information. And they are all tied together with this little Indian string, which had first been used by Queen Victoria as a kind of, basically it's a paperclip, a 19th century Mm -hmm. paperclip. And, you know, I had, like I said, a good experience, an open experience. 
I can only say positive things about the help I was given. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a resident of the UK, so I was doing this on various trips. The archives kindly scanned things for me and, and offered wow. to me. So this was new material, exciting material. It was there if you asked the right questions. That's amazing. That's incredible. Fascinating that that's the distinction of, of access there. That's really interesting. So we do want to get into some of Edward's revelations, particularly on the matters that most define his legacy. The, one of the biggest ones, the fact that he chose love over monarchy when he abdicated in 1936. What did you make of his account of the abdication? I think it's very raw. I mean, it was not, I think, well, and as you, you know, when you read the book, you'll find that as he shares his manuscript with colleagues, with his advisors, and, and with people like Max Beaverbrook, and of course, Churchill, you know, they're not receptive to this account. You know, he, he certainly have to, had to be at times corrected on details, which is, of course, why he shared it with these, you know, with his close circle. But it's a raw account. I think it's an account that reveals a lot about his well, his emotional state at the time, I think it also reveals that he thought critically and conscientiously about his role as a constitutional monarch. And he resists the urgings of people like Churchill and Beaverbrook, who are pressing him to press the question of having this marriage and remaining on the throne. And, and he resists this because having been brought up in the tradition of constitutional monarchy, I think there's an inherent um, uh, refusal to, to basically drive it to what would have been a constitutional crisis. One of the things I dislike so much about discussion around the abdication is that they talk about the constitutional crisis. There was no constitutional crisis. The constitutional crisis would have been had Edward pressed publicly the point of his marriage and force the government to resign and there be a general election on his marriage. That would have been a constitutional crisis. Edward refuses to do that. He decides that this marriage is what he wants and he wishes not to push the put the monarchy in jeopardy. And I don't think he's given credit for the fact that he wasn't willing to simply say, well, I want both. I want both this marriage mm -hmm. and I want to stay. Was there any particular detail that stood out that differs from the current public perception of what happened? Uh, the emphasis, I think, on the fact that he did wish to broadcast to his people, you know, that is so he wished to broad. once the story broke, he he had this idea that he would broadcast to the country and basically say, you know, I, I found this woman I love. I want to have this marriage, this domestic life of my choice. And I'd also like to remain as king, but you need to decide. Of course, the government was not going to allow that. But I think the emphasis on that speech and the fact that we also reprint that speech in full, which actually a copy of it exists at Balliol at Oxford, you know, shows that he, he wasn't, you know, people talk about Edward as if he never wanted to be king. He certainly wanted to be king on his own terms which was to have this marriage. And I think, you know, this is something, of course, that the present king has done. He wanted to have this role, but he wanted to have this private life, this, this domestic happiness that he yearned for. And no one has questioned his ability to be king. And of course, they did question it in Edward's case. And so, you know, I, I just resist this idea. He never wanted to be king. He was trying to get out of it. He wanted to be king, but on his own terms, which were not just the terms of his marriage, but the terms of how he wished as a modern monarch 
to um to to reign. Yeah, well Charles definitely had like a bumpy path getting to where he yes. is now, right? He had a bumpy path and and you know he drove at points, I think he drove at points the monarchy to, I mean, you could argue that, that you they hit a precipice. Edward does not do that. You have 10, so there are 10 days of instability. The 90s were, you know, the 90s and early 2000s, there was like a decade of it. You know, Edward fixed, his, his is a 10-day limit. And he sees the storm and he decides, well, it's more important for me to have this chance at personal happiness. And I do want to make that point. You know, I'm not interested in this book in arguing, well, were they happy? Weren't they happy? My point is that it was a choice to have the chance of happiness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Probably, as you mentioned, beyond the abdication, the biggest part of his legacy today is that he was a Nazi sympathizer. He met with Hitler just seven months after his abdication. And it's hard to dispute the facts about his ties. How do you think his words, in his own voice, of course, affect the narrative here? Well, I don't actually think it's hard to dispute the ties that have been um, promoted in the kind of sort of ecosystem of the Duke of Windsor uh, and, and, and research, you know, so he did meet with Hitler in, in October of 1937 for about three hours. And I think what the book firstly does is give the kind of context, which is lacking about that trip, which it had nothing to do with political sympathies and everything to do with Edward as vaulting himself into a new career as a, well, a, a sort of post-royal ambassadorial role uh, interested in, housing, social welfare, industrial conditions. And of course, you know, as I mentioned, Lloyd George, many people met with Hitler. And as Wallace says in the book, you know, it was it was an experience to meet someone who was anchoring world politics at that moment, who was, uh, you know, people were fascinated by perhaps not in a good way, but who you're wondering about them. They're this figure on the international scene that it was fascinating to go and meet him. I think what also was illuminating to me with these with reading his words about this was just how the trajectory of Edward and Wallace, I suppose, to find their place post exile and receive solid counsel, because I think that they didn't have sort of they had gone from having a very clear path to being totally on the having political involvements, but then not really having them anymore. Well, he certainly had. He had lived his life amidst a team of advisors that had, you know, he never went to, as Prince of Wales, he would never have gone somewhere or met someone that hadn't been highly vetted. And and what he finds himself in 1937 is amongst a group of people, Charles Beddow, Thomas Watson, the head of IBM, you know, men of business, who he is now leaning in on in place of these advisors who would have said and steered him away. And I think, you know, I I really think that's a great point you've picked up on because I think it's one of, it's at the heart of Edward's problems during this period. He simply is not being advised. And I think his view of that tour of Germany would have been the same as if he had any of his other previous tours, which of course had taken him around the world. You know, he wouldn't have seen that as a political tour. And in fact, he he says to Eric Phipps, the British ambassador to France, who warns him of the propaganda dangers of this visit, he says, oh, I'm not going to make any speeches. This is not a political trip. Because that's how all his other trips as a Prince of Wales, as a royal had been. And what he fails to understand is that outside this royal network that he finds himself in 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 October 1937, he's no longer protected 
by the system and by um, all of the things that would have kept him apolitical. Suddenly, instead of being an, part of a representative and of an institution, he is just himself. And so this visit becomes an expression of himself rather than of an institution. And he, he completely fails to see that there is now, um, there's a distinction in his life and in how his actions will be understood. Mm-hmm. We also want to touch on, of course, your book covers his relationship with Wallace Simpson. So we want to ask, why was Edward so hell-bent on Wallace getting the HRH title? Well, I think I think we have to simplify it into more human terms. I think anyone who marries or is partnered with someone else wishes their partner to be their equal. So I think there's that just very human element of the story. I also think that having been told five months earlier that a morganatic marriage did not exist in England under English law, they found themselves having a morganatic marriage. And of course, legally, what initially George VI was told is that legally he was he was entitled to that title. She was entitled to that. And there were, you know, they found a way around it. And of course, it created a huge amount of bitterness for him. I actually think much less for her throughout their entire life, of course, you know, they were never rid of it. There was always that, do you curtsy to her? Do you call her HRH? And, you know, imagine being confronted with that at every dinner party you go to, every cocktail party, every lunch you go to, you know, it must have been just mm-hmm. talk about constantly reminding of that wound. I think that was very difficult and, and, unchar- and ungenerous of the royal family. Yeah. What was the most surprising takeaway through your research about the relationship between Wallace and Edward? One of the, I think, the things that you take away from the material is that, that the decision to abdicate and was he made that decision alone. It was not a joint decision. It was one he made and she was forced to face the consequences of it, and which she did. There was a part, I think, in the book where you say that she wasn't even aware of the marriage proposal at one point. She says to Murphy, you know, the king had never asked me to marry him. I mean, I think, you know, Edward probably, I, I believe that, I, I can believe that in the sense of I think Edward would, Edward simply assumed. And of course, after he abdicated, there was just this assumption that they would marry. I mean, you know, that was just now what she was left with. And, you know, I think in a way, I think she behaved very well because, of course, she bore the brunt of most of the negative publicity. At the, particularly contemporaneously, I think now she, he's the one who has the negative publicity. She's things have uh, eased on her, but at the time, you know, this was entirely about she was an adventurous. Rumors about her sort of you know sexual adventures in China, overwhelmed by negative publicity. Which again, think about this in human terms. You know that must have been overwhelming to deal with and to then appear in public and look confident and happy. You know, they they both of them had to live up to the greatest love story of the 20th century, which I think was was a burden um, at times in their lives. Oh, I can't Pressure imagine. making, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pressure making, definitely. Well, we want to move into kind of more recent times. So the crown, the tabloids, this sort of interest to maybe erase or diminish Edward and Wallace from British royal history. Can you talk a little bit about how that compelled you and your work on this particular book? Yeah, I mean, I've always felt that Edward was such an important figure in the history of 20th century British monarchy. You know, he's the British royal who is at the forefront of the the monarchy's image as it 
recovers from the cataclysm of the First World War, where the European monarchies have been devastated. You've seen the death of the Tsar and his family, you know, and the British monarchy are now also struggling with the fact the empire is is not as strong. And Edward just become he becomes the face of that monarchy and his the way his his charm, of course, his good looks his charisma, but his ability to understand the modernizing elements that were going to be crucial if the monarchy was to survive in the coming decades, I think was extraordinary. You know, he realized it had to become a more empathetic, more personal, less formal monarchy than the one, of course, his father and his grandfather. And, you know, he really much to the um, chagrin of his, I think, mostly his father, but I'd probably say both, embraced these modernizing prin- principles. And, you know, he really also transitioned, I think, how we think of British royals from royalty to celebrity. He became a celebrity in, in the United States. He went to Canada, Canada in 1919, and, and there was a sort of surprise visit to the United States. And that vaults him into the realm of Hollywood celebrity. And of course, makes the monarchy much more popular in the United States. And I think he just caught the tempo of what was coming as far as royals having to having to adapt. I think he was too early for for that adapting process. I think he came up to at loggerheads with the, the really the traditional voices, which were the only voices during the time that that he was Prince of Wales. You know, of course, he was uh, he was a glamorous young man who was enjoying nightlife, who was, you know... Good looking, too. <laughs> I mean, what 25-year-old is not going to enjoy, like, in, enjoy the world when they're out, you know, out and about? But of course, by the time, even by 1930, by the time he moves into Fort Belvedere, you know, he has really adopted a more... A more a, a calmer lifestyle, more domestic lifestyle, and of course, the Great Depression happens, and he becomes the empathetic face of the British monarchy as Britain um, is struggling with economic collapse, and he is deeply moved by the plight and by the predicament of the working man, and I think really enables the monarchy to avoid any the kind of criticisms of being out of touch or uncaring, you know, he becomes the caring face of the monarchy. I think there are fascinating parallels between Edward and Diana, in fact, um, and in multiple ways. And I think their ability to empathize with the people they met who were struggling is, is, is one of them. Yeah, we've heard we've had guests on that have mentioned parallels between them before. Speaking of parallels, great transition. We wanted to ask you about the air and the spare dynamic, because that crops up in the book a bit where you hear even something simple like Edward mentioning the fact that he was envious of his younger brother being able to travel while he was stuck at Oxford. You know, what would what would you make of that rivalry and frustration there as Edward wrote about it? You know, he doesn't, I don't think he really, he doesn't convey a sense of rivalry. What he does convey, I think, is a sense of unease with the fact that he is in this extraordinary position. He is constantly told he is special. He is different. And I think in one of the most moving passages of these drafts, he says, but I under, he basically says, I understood that I wasn't, I wasn't that special. Like I saw my contemporaries and I, I could tell that I wasn't, I really wasn't that great. 
And yet all along the way, I'm being told, oh, you're special, you're privileged, you know, you, you do things differently. And I do think it created in him a real sense of inadequacy, a sense of wanting to prove himself and a sense of that he, I think he felt he was never judged for who he was, always judged for the role that he was, he occupied. And I, so I, I'm not sure if there was a rivalry. I also think he, um, he longed for that kind of domestic happiness that the Duke of York had. There are complicated arguments about why he didn't have that. He certainly pursued women, Frida Dudley Ward, Thelma Furness, who weren't going to enable that for him. So it certainly was his own decisions at times. But I do think he, you know, by the time he meets Wallace Simpson, he is looking, he wants this, this domestic life and he wants, he wants a partner Mm-hmm. Well, we wanted to ask you about that specifically. And of course, Royal Memoirs, we've had Spare by Prince Harry come out earlier this year. Do you have any advice for how to best digest that firsthand info versus these vague royal sources that we see so often in the tabloids? I think that autobiography is always fascinating because even if it doesn't give you the whole truth, of course, it it lets you into how that person wishes their life to be perceived, which says something about them and, 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 and is helpful for history. I think that, I mean, in terms of royal sources, the sort of, you know, the, the constant, do you think, are you talking about like the constant commenting on like Harry's life or what Meghan are doing or... More just the vagueness. It's like, you know, most of the headlines are attributed to an anonymous source, you know, with with royal reporting. And I think that it's here we have these with with Spare and now this. It's like the firsthand accounts hold a lot of value, but it is that one-sided view. But it's credited. Well, I mean, one thing, I mean, one thing about these drafts is Edward did not intend these for publication. Yes. So I think that's a big difference to say something that has been, of course, the King story was crafted for publication. His life articles were crafted for publication. These were not. And, and, you know, he talks about, as in this process, he says, I'm creating this unexpurgated book for posterity, um, that that is his plan. And so I think that gives them an an air, an element of authenticity, which maybe is a, is a layer deeper than just, is a layer deeper than just a published version. Yeah. You know, of course, there is uh, there is self censorship in any in any conversation we have with anyone. There's self censorship. So, is this the complete total truth? No, but it certainly, I think, gives a window into his Edward's personality, how he viewed his life, how he viewed his career as Prince of Wales, how he viewed his wife how he, you know, he viewed falling in love with his wife. I mean, he talks about that. I think it's a fascinating comment when he mentions that his mother, who had chided him and his other dalliances, you know, she never mentioned Wallace. And and he says maybe she knew it was more important than the others, that there was something different here. And so, you know, didn't want to go there. So I think little things like that. And another, I think, extremely revealing comment is he says, you know, I made sure to keep people away from Mrs. Simpson. My mother, my advisors, I and in terms of saying who decided there was going to be an abdication, I mean, that statement says it was Edward. He controlled that. And I, so I think, you know, I when people ask me, you know, is there one big revelation? I, I, I don't think there's one big revelation. What I think the revelation is that we rediscovered Edward and Wallace, who I hope emerges from this text. We rediscover them as individuals. You know, this is. 
Edward's story. This is, and he's telling the story. It's not my story. I really, I feel that strongly. And I hope that people emerge with a sense of who he was as an individual. He's humanized. He's we we can we can touch on his personality in a way that we've completely lost in the um, in what's now being written and discussed about regarding the Windsors. Interesting. Well, Jane, we are so excited that this book is going to be coming to the U.S. and that it's coming out this week. And happy Pub Week to you! And it's a privilege that you spent so much time with us. And we are definitely going to be reminding our readers to uh, pre-order, get all the copies, all that stuff. Well, we appreciate you joining. I really appreciate your enthusiasm. Yes, we love Thank it. Thank you so much. Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.